On the podcast this week, we spend the day with legend John McEnroe, who rose to stardom in the early 80s and remains at the forefront of pro tennis today as a blunt broadcast commentator. Equally famous for his colorful personality as he is for his illustrious achievements, McEnroe opens up about what life might be like once the spotlight fades. What's going to happen when... Uh, they don't know. Are you going to be able okay with that? Plus, he reflects on both the pros and cons of his relationship with anger. I think in some ways, you know, anger can, can be used in a positive way. Uh, if it gets you to try harder, it's a good thing to express yourself. And making millions buying and selling artwork. Some of the art that I sold, I sold and made money on, but it's worth 20 times what it is, you know. We began the 2018 interview with an entertaining story of McEnroe's relationship with Nike founder Phil Knight. What do you know about how you got Nike founder Phil Knight into the business of tennis? When when I first signed with Nike, I've been actually Nike with Nike since May of 1978. O'Connor's and Nastasi, and I believe 75, you know, started wearing the swoosh, the Wimbledon sneakers that I was wearing for a while. And this was just starting to happen, you know, exploding in a way that players, athletes would actually get paid to wear, you know, equipment, sneakers, clothes, et cetera, rackets. I mean, this was like a new thing. When I was getting a lot of heat from the establishment in tennis and people are like, suspend McEnroe for a year, he's bad for the game. I'd get a call, it'd be Phil Knight, and he'd be like, keep doing what you're doing. Really? Yeah, yeah. And he, he loved it. And he would actually do campaigns that would sort of, um, support what I did. Uh, you know, one of them was like Nike tennis shoes are better than Dunlop rackets which I used because I was, you know, about to snap one of my wooden rackets. So he would take what appeared to be a negative, you know, a lemon and turn it into lemonade. And so he was the first guy that I went to because obviously over the year, Phil was really big into tennis and it was sort of, uh, and he played a lot and he was around the tournaments and over time, he's certainly been far and away the number one supporter when I started the Tennis Academy. What do you remember from when Phil Knight came to you and asked, uh, what do you think of Just Do It? <laughs> um, well, we were out in Portland, and at that time, you know, I don't know how many buildings there are now, there's gotta be 25, but at that time, I think there was five or six. So the fact that I had my name on one of those and um, that Phil was, his office was in my building, you know, it made me feel pretty good. I was, you know, feeling full of myself. Uh, and um, then, obviously, just because you're an employee, you're involved and they're trying to throw out things that may or may not work, and not all of them do. One of them was, you know, I've got this idea for Just Do It. Terrible idea. <laughs> That's know. what you said. Yeah, terrible idea. Why? You know, everyone says that. Well, exactly. But to me, it was like, come on. I mean, you got to do, think of something better than that. So that's why I'm sitting here at, you know, <laughs> at a tennis academy, and he's worth $25 billion. Uh, broadcasting. Uh, you broadcast all the Grand Slams. Um, how did you get to the place, though, where you could do that for rival U.S. networks? Well, I got to do it by this is, uh, I thought, was my best chance of success go to them and say, don't pay me any more money, the next contract, just give me the same contract. But let me call, in the case of, I was with NBC, was my original broadcast company. 
let me call CBS, because I used to work for USA, and they'd cover it through the quarters, and then the last three days, I'd have egg on my face. And what about the semis and finals? And then it felt like there's something missing. So I thought, boy, it'd be nice if I could figure out a way to get to be able to do the whole tournament. So I think that the key was when you tell a TV executive, don't pay me more, they actually start listening a lot more carefully. Uh, what do you enjoy about broadcasting? Well, I guess that, um, that it allows people to see me in a different light than they saw me when I played. When I played, it was sort of, I believed the way I needed to succeed was to be super, I mean, even though I know this big strapping guy, it, I didn't feel like that would be very intimidating, so I needed to sort of intimidate in a different way. What can I do to, you know, get an edge on people? Well, I can come out and the first poem just go guns blazing, um, in super intense. Now, sometimes it obviously went too far. Not. You can't try too hard, I don't think, but I go over the top or lose it for whatever variety of reasons. Um, and I believe that that was something that um, I needed to do. I was talking to our shared friend, your partner in the booth, uh, Chris Fowler, um, who said, quote, when I work a match with John, I'm on my toes. You have to make sure you know your <laughs> Your thoughts? Um, you know, I like to sort of play it fairly loose, actually, and I think that, you know, I'm not a big believer in um, rehearsals or meetings. I think that that's actually, for me, uh, maybe I'm just saying this so I can get out of them, but like to me, it's actually energy wasted. You know, you don't, it, 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 tell me something I don't know and I'd be happy to hear it. Um, and so I remember Connors, Jimmy used, said to me, he, he commentated for a couple of years before uh, I had worked at NBC and he's like, son, he called me son for some reason, uh, oftentimes, not all the time. He goes, it's all yours, you know, I've had it. I can't handle the meetings. And I remember that it, a, a light bulb went off of me. I said, Jimmy's got a lot of energy also and he's got a lot of intensity. So what can I do in order to try to eliminate that because if you have a meeting at nine but you're not working at six you know you're around you know there's better time should be better spent so when I figured that out and then I figured out that I was able to sort of show people that I had a personality you know I actually try to model myself after Vetus uh, the way he commentated because he was the first guy I saw where he was like wow it looks like he's actually enjoying being up there and he's not taking himself so damn seriously it's a it's a tennis match um, and you want it to be uh, where you can, the average Joe could uh, learn something, but sort of maybe the expert or the, the people that think they know everything could learn something as well. Even the players, that they come up, hey, it's good. And I was surprised actually at how people would come up to me and go, hey, you can commentate. I go, what the hell do you think I could do? I mean, I was, my job was to sort of figure out a way to beat a guy, you know, and so I'd size the guy up and I'd figure out what I could do in order to make me look better and him look worse and beat him. And so in a way, that's what you're doing as a commentator, but you have the luxury of sort of being a backseat driver. You got a chance to sort of take a deep breath. That's a lot better than when it's happening in real time. It's a lot easier, I should say. And so it, it, it actually bothered me for a while. I, it really bothered me that people would say, you're a better commentator than you are a tennis player. I go, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not a better te commentator than I'm a tennis I was the number one damn tennis player in the world. What the hell are you talking about? You, you, what do you know about tennis? 
And I'd be, I'd be pissed, honestly. And then I thought I'd, I'd go home and after this went on for way too long, I'd go, wait a minute. They're actually you know, giving me a huge compliment. <laughs> if they're saying that I'm as better at that as a commentator than I was as a player, I must be a pretty good commentator because I was a pretty good player. One more broadcast question for you. Uh, Andy Murray serving to win Wimbledon, become the first Brit in more than 75 years to win the Grand Slam. You guys say nothing for like six straight points during the broadcast. Take me into the booth and what you're thinking as a broadcaster for those points. Well, as a broadcaster, I think and often times in tennis, but in, in all sports, they feel like they have to hear themselves talk. And I've been lucky enough to understand, being a player myself, how difficult it is, you know, win, lose, or draw. And for that moment, you know, for to me, it's not about me anymore, and there's nothing I need to say. It's actually better. Some of my best work is when I've shut up. When Federer played Nadal, the 2008 Wimbledon final, I didn't say almost anything in the entire fifth set because what I saw was giving me goosebumps. And you know, you don't need, it, you, you're better off, in my opinion, not saying anything and letting it just speak for itself. There's a temptation, you know, in a way, well, you know, God, thank God McEnroe said that, baloney to me. So there's, there's an art to it, I believe, you know, so it's more difficult when you have more people in the booth to control that because, you know, in, people get impulsive or feel like they need to or can't help themselves or disagree with my, what I believe. And that doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong, but it, I believe that, uh, that especially in those type of moments, that's really where you need to sort of step back. Tell about the envelope you got with the letter and offer from yeah, Donald Trump. I should have brought it. Um, I was calling a match, I think it was the, I don't know, 2000, 2001 Open, somewhere around there. It was after Serena and Venus had started talking about they could beat a lot of guys. And then this German guy who was, you know, like a minor league player and a doubles guy, challenged them at the Australian Open um, and be, in, in practice sets and beat both of them. You know, he's, the guy was smoked, smoked. So we, you know, the guys started laughing about it, but it continued and, you know, they obviously were, you know, two of the greatest athletes you've ever seen, men or women, but obviously women, you're like, wow, these, these, these two, uh, Serene and Venus are, and, and so over time, somehow, I guess, cause I'm a commentator, or I'm not exactly sure why I was the sort of the fall guy for this. So why didn't they bring, they're always like, well, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I don't, I think Serene and Venus are great, but I, I'm, you're not going to sit there and have me say I can't, you know, beat them. So I was calling a match, and suddenly I get this envelope, and it's from Donald Trump, you know, who's promoter galore. Little did I know what was going to end up happening, nor I believe anyone else. Um, if you think some of the things I did was crazy, were the craziest thing in the last 250 years of our entire. United, history of the United States is that Donald Trump <laughs> became president. I mean, amazing. So he wrote me a letter, said, you know, dear uh, John, you know, I, I want to offer you a, $1 million again um, uh, to play either Serena or Venus. Um, so I remember thinking at the time when I got that note, I said, well, that's a good start. Uh, and so over the course of time, literally, you know, my kids, you know, my daughters have, uh, dad, I don't know if you can beat Serena. <laughs> I'm like, God, 
I didn't even get my kids on my side. Why did you turn down uh, Trump's offer? I, it, it's, it's never been something where I was like, I want to go play a woman in a match. That's one reason. I was, um, I, didn't, I didn't see that. I've been told over the course of many years that if, and I've said this, by the way, uh, that if, I believe that if it's, well, we'd sell out, you know, some stadium or the Garner, HBO would be huge. Well, if it's huge, let's see some huge money. And all that money, by the way, will go to charity. So just so I don't think I'm taking you know, the money. I always said that, but I, it's not something that I ever wanted to do. Uh, I just feel like I needed to defend myself. Maybe I'm not as sure now that I could do it as I was then, because I'm getting a little older and grayer. But nonetheless, you know, I was like, wait a second, I was the number one player in the world. You know, I wasn't a bad player. Why don't they talk about that with track and field, or soccer, or basketball, or any other sport? What happens if some girl goes and plays in the NBA? Uh, what happens if a track star that won the, you know, 100 meters runs against a college guy? What happens if the numbers, whoever it is in the world, plays Serena? I mean, but somehow it's me, the old fart. <laughs> you know? um, all right, so you won uh, seven Grand Slam titles over five years that started and ended with U.S. Open. Uh, six Champions. years. Oh, yeah, is six. it five? No, maybe you're right. Five. Um, the, Say, five? Oh, yeah. You're right. Somewhere around there. Oh, my there God, you're right. Uh, started and ended with U.S. Yes. Open uh, championships. Um, even with that having been said, you've said your most enjoyable years were 79 and 80 when you were number three in the world, not number one. Why? Uh, I think that the, the climbing the ladder is, is, is more exciting and you learn from your mistakes, uh, at least I did. I think it's easier at a younger age to sort of keep perspective and, you know, it, it's, it's you're on the road for the first time in a full-time basis. You're just, in a way, loving every minute of it. Um, you don't have the pressure. I didn't realize the difference. You know, I said, look, if I'm number one in uh, the world, or I'm number three in 1979, number two in 1980, and now I'm number one, that's not a big difference. You know, it appeared. Um, it was, I was thinking, it's only one, you know, it's only one guy. So there should be a heap, heap uh, full of pressure on that guy. But I was amazed at how different it was. In what ways was it different? Um, I just do, especially because Bjorn stopped right when I be, really became number one. So that put the focus, the spotlight even more on me because they didn't have, they, they, everyone was so shocked that he had stopped that they pretend like it didn't happen. But even in other sports, I think for some reason that number one, and I, I understand it to agree, I don't understand to the degree that things changed, but the, it, was, it, it seems so much tougher. You became less trusting of people when... I'm not sure that I was all that trusting before. Uh, having my mom was always sort of wary of anything, you know, people taking advantage of me, so I probably always had that, but it got worse, of course. You know, you always feel like people are taking advantage of you, but um, I did feel that um, my world got smaller than I wanted it to be. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do as easily. Uh, but that's also because, you know, you're successful and people, um, they want a, more a piece of you or you're more public or they think that, you know, you have to act in a certain way. I mean, you can go on and on. It's, it, and, um, and by the way, a lot of it's good. You know, most of it is good. Um, so, I, I mean, I think people, they have a tendency to sort of make it sound like me or other, oh God, it's so tough. And 
I can understand why people can't relate in, in a lot of ways, uh, most people that aren't in that position. So you do gravitate towards people that you feel like you can, can relate to, even if it's in other areas of entertainment, whether it's music or uh, successful uh, actors, uh, other sports. You know, people that you feel like can sort of understand what you're going through. 1980 Wimbledon, you and Borg, epic fourth set tiebreaker that you end up winning 18 uh, to 16, seven times you defended the championship point. But you end up losing that match and you said Borg's much later retirement caused you to lose motivation uh, and it took you a couple of years before you started improving again as a player. Why? Well, that was uh, a match where it really became apparent that there was something really special when we played. And it was in the biggest of occasions. So to me, I was really looking forward to a lot more of it. Um, yeah, the next year I beat him in the finals in Wimbledon. And yes, I beat him in the next year at the finals of the Open. But that doesn't mean the tables couldn't have been turned two years later or three. But the important thing to me was that we were making each other better. I believe at least, I know he was making me better and I hope that I was making him better. We were so different, but we actually were friendly. You know, we got along. He was like the guy that I never had a problem with. So it was so shocking when he stopped, so surprising. Not really someone that I could test myself or look at and say, okay, what do I need to do now? Not that there weren't other players there, but I, I kept waiting for him to come back. And so it took me a while, a year or two, to realize he wasn't coming back. Why do you still feel sick when you're in Paris and oftentimes wonder how differently your life would have been had you won the French I don't Open? know how differently my life would have been. I think I would have been considered like higher up on the sort of all-time greats. You know, my ranking seems to be dropping uh, each, every couple of years. I mean, I hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm still in the top 10. But um, it's also unfair because there wasn't the same importance on the Australian and French Open back when. But you I mean, you know, I, I did recognize that uh, I felt like, okay, I got to prove to people because I actually was better. And when I was growing up on clay, uh, uh, I'd won the, the big events, the French juniors, for example. So, I mean, I wanted to prove that I could do it on all surfaces. And, and I should have proven it. I did prove it, but I didn't. I choked when I needed to just. And then by the time. Um, I thought, okay, I got to win it the next year. I didn't win it the next year. The following year, I didn't play because my son was born. And then uh, when I took time off and decided I was going to become a better player, I didn't become a better player. So I never, you know, was able to, and I had to put, you have to go over there for long periods of time in order to really pay your dues and get used to the court more than I was willing or capable of doing. So I had to prioritize a little bit, which I didn't want to do, but I never was the same. So I, I, I do feel like um, there's at least a day. Most of the time, I have a good time in Paris, by the way. Um, it's a beautiful, it's the most beautiful city in the world. People are they're, they're very supportive, uh, even now. Uh, they say positive things. Um, so there's only a day or two where I have those like sort of nightmares, I guess. Uh, basically. Legitimately yeah, still. Legitimately, like you wake up and it's a, Oh yeah, I lost. You know, one of those. What's the nightmare about? Well, the nightmare is about what I, what, how did I screwed it up? You know, basically, and what I could or should have done. But you know, I try to minimize that. I mean, you know, we all have our 
I bet you wish you had done an interview better at one time or another. And it keeps you up at night. Yeah. All 31 years of you. How well do you recall going up to introduce yourself to Jimmy Connors for the first time shortly before you guys yeah. played? I didn't really have a chance to, hey, I'm John McEnroe. You know, it was more like he brushed me off before I'd even had a chance to say it. So I was like, oh my God, this guy's intense, man. I, w I was so wound up even before that happened because I'd never been on the center court. I was a junior. I didn't even know I was going to play the main draw. I just got into the qualifying, and two weeks later, three weeks, I'm in the semis in Wimbledon with me and Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, and Vitas Garolitis. I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? Um, and that's, I mean, I knew enough about, even as a kid, you know, that people do weird things. And it's, hey, I'm Jimmy Connors. Nice to meet you. Relax, so you play better. You know, I can understand where right. he was coming to right. show this kid, and, and then maybe I'll acknowledge his existence after I kick his ass. But so that was the big tournament for you because you make it to the semifinals of Wimbledon Center Court, only 18 years old. Even though you lose to him, you end up beating him later in an event at Madison Square Garden that he didn't even finish when it was clear he was losing. Um, but why do you think the two of you have had so little respect for each other over the years? And when, if ever, do you think that's changed? No, 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 we, no. We, we, we don't like each other, you know. And I think that if we were in a room now, we could talk. We always had respect for each okay. other. That's absolutely untrue. Um, I always respected Jimmy Connors as far as the only guy that's ever tried on a tennis court harder than Jimmy Connors is Rafael Nadal, in my book. And he's not far behind. Every time I'd look in the mirror before I play him or someone else, I'd say to myself, "Is am I trying as hard as Jimmy Connors?" So I definitely, again, with him, was I hope that I made him better, and I know he made me better. Why do you think you guys didn't like each other? Besides him being a complete ass. <laughs> okay, I mean, and, why, and him thinking I was. Well, okay, why, like, oh, why is there that feeling between obviously, the two? Obviously, uh, there's. Uh, <laughs> I, we're. We sort of have some sort of Irish, you know, sort of ancestry that, you know, we might be somewhat volatile or have, you know, a, uh, get, get a little upset, you know, maybe more easily than, than mothers. But I mean, from his perspective, I could understand it. I'd be the same way if some 18 year old kid and I'm like number one or two in the world and he's trying to take my mantle or he'd become, you know, the number one American, I can see why he would not like that and want to do everything in his power to make sure that didn't happen. So that's, you know, from a competitive a aspect, I understand that. And we're not out there, like, let's go have dinner afterwards. So you only see, we only see what's happening sort of on the court. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to be able to sort of take a step back and say we're human beings. You get all like worked up, crazed. You thought uh, him and Pete Rose were uh, separated at birth. Yeah. Well, they, 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 Elaborate they, on that. Well, they're, <laughs> I mean, they look like twins to me. You know, they had those same haircuts and the way they played, you know, that intensity when Pete Rose ran over, what, what was it? Uh, Ray Foss or whatever it was in the, the All-Star yeah. game, and you're like, what in God's name is this guy doing? Breaks the guy's leg or ruins his knee or whatever it was. And you're thinking, this, this guy's going 110% every time. And he, 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 I, I, maybe I didn't forget how he crushed me when I shook his hand. But um, you know, that, that level of like, they had this chip on their shoulder, like everyone was against them. So I, 
I just thought those, I literally you know, would look at those two as like almost the exact same people. Tell me about the senior tour event you were playing with Jimmy Connors where he walks off the court midway through and the conversation the two of you had in the locker room that got him back Well, up. actually the conversation wasn't that bad. I mean, he walked off and I was winning. I should have left well enough alone, but being the moron that I am, you know, I tried to convince him, look, this is better because, look, we're, this isn't the finals of Wimbledon now. For, for us, it was a big match because we were playing in Dallas and um, it was sort of a good crowd. I mean, it's not like it was a Wimbledon crowd, but there was energy and people wanted to see us play and we were battling. And he got fed up. I don't know if it was because he got some bad call. I don't even remember now, to be honest, because it could happen. It could be, who knows? It depends on who you ask. Or he was mad because I was, he thought I was making fun of him or I was doing something he didn't like or whatever. It was hot. Also, you know, he got hot out of the collar. And so he just walked off the court. He said, I've had it, man. I'm like, Jimmy, you can't do that, you know? And then. I, of course, which I have this unique way of doing, I have uh, an ability to get people so mad at me that they've never tried harder, you know, or they take it out somehow on the court and they give 120%. And so I've managed to do that with Lendl and Connors and others, you know, because they get, how oh, he's act like that, what a jerk. And so um, he went back out there and I started getting a little bit tight. And the next thing you know, the crowd's booing, you know, he boo him off the court because he, how can you leave a court and just quit? I mean, that's not Jimmy Connors, right? They're booing me at the end of the match. Like, how, how did I get booed? At least, you know, I, I wish they'd get the whole story. Maybe they'd understand John a little better. Um, your parents, uh, you said they had a serious and demanding side. They expected achievement. In what ways? Well, I think in all ways. Um, they gave me opportunities that most kids don't get. Um, they put me, even though it would, it would cost my dad, you know, and he eventually became a partner in the law firm, but it wasn't always that way. So he tried to make sure me and my two brothers had a, a vacation. I'm not every family can do that and, 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 and go to a private school, which he thought would be give, I, I guess, a better opportunity for something down the road. And so in return, it was expected, uh, so the way I see it, was you know, to be able to you know, g give everything you had in terms of whatever it was. You're, you go out and play sports, or more, more importantly, um, do good in school, and so at least set yourself up if it just doesn't work out. It wasn't like a 12, I'm like, I'm gonna be a tennis player. I think that my dad, I didn't really wanna play tennis that much. It was, felt like it was pushed on me a little bit. I mean, of course, it was a club a block away from me, so it wasn't like it was that difficult for me to go out and hit some balls. But eventually I started going to different areas and people started talking and say, hey, this guy could do this. And so there was expectations, I suppose, that I try to deflate or you know, uh, get, get my dad to back off a little bit. And I think I was successful in a certain ways. I mean, not many kids at 12 would tell their father, look, you know, just back off until I'm 18 because that's when we'll see what college I get into and what the future lies. Don't, you know, I don't want to peak at 12 or 14 or 16. So I think that I was somewhat mature beyond my years that I was sort of able to sort of see that that would help me take some of the pressure off. Um, but, you know, of course, you always wonder, and I'm sure some other people do, 
myself included, to what degree do you push? Did they push me too much? That caused me to some ways to sort of lash out. Uh, or is it that obviously if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been the player I have. So to what degree do you sort of try to do that to better yourself? I want to talk about your mom, Kay. I heard a couple stories. One, uh, your dad finished second in his law school class of 500. She asked why he didn't right. finish first. Two, uh, whenever you had an exam that you scored less than 95% on, she's asking, like, right. what's going on? Well, so that's true. How tough was she? Well, she was tough, but, you know, I think that um, she was um, someone that was tough in a different way. I mean, she was... How? Well, the business more about look, you got to do well in school and you, you, you can, but, but also she said, oh, you were always like that, Johnny. I think that she saw a perfectionist side in me at a very young age and someone who wanted, you know, had a desperate desire or need to succeed at whatever I did. So she maybe sort of threw a little gasoline on the fire or what she thought would be best for me. And that's the way she was also. She was that way. She, I mean, imagine, you know, my dad being, you know, second out of 500, and well, how come you weren't first? Well, that's sort of deflating a little bit, if you think about that, but that, maybe that pushed him to become the person he was in, in law, that he became a part of. I don't, you know, this is, you know, we have to call Zygmunt Freud up. How tough was 2017 for you? With 2017 was, uh, was definitely, um, uh, definitely tough. Uh, it was uh, still coming to grips with it, still coming to terms with it. Um, my parents uh, obviously were an extremely important part of my life. My dad, I had noticed over time, uh, trying to forge a different type of relationship, that um, he had lost his identity when he was sort of forced into retirement, the retirement age of 65 at Paul Weiss and his law firm. And he, be, he, he sort of wasn't the same person, you know, and over time, I think that caught up to him. And, but nonetheless, it was still surprising even though his health was declining and it was still hard but I, I, I really thought my mom would have this opportunity to sort of have this last five ten years of her life where she could do with things her way because it had been about my dad more and um, concern and then frustration because he was you know not taking care of himself and, and, and getting old and so that was extremely difficult to have that backed up five months later by my mom passing away. Like, it blew, it blew my mind. Um, so I've been, ever since that, Graham, I've been sort of like, say, you got to take a step back. You got to slow down here. And you got to think about, you know, making sure that you're doing things that you hopefully want to do as much as possible and smelling the roses more, maybe. And, and I was lucky. Both my parents uh, lived to their 81. That's a pretty good life uh, for most of them, but nonetheless, it's been, uh, I still feel like I was, you know, a, a two by four, I just. Really? Yeah. How did you get through it? I'm not through it. I'm still dealing with it, but I think like, look, you gotta, you gotta just spend time, whatever time it takes to look at the glass half full as opposed glass half empty. I mean, if you're gonna look at it half empty, then what chance is it for a lot of other people? Uh, and so I've tried to just, um, you know, basically simplify and make sure that I'm doing things, hopefully, and number one, doing things I want to do, and hopefully just putting forth in play, into place, whether it's with relationships again, or, you know, the future may hold in terms of work, or, you know, where I want to live, any really basic things, 
do I want to make changes in my life? I, you know, t really think these things through and, 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 and take my time and, and realize how important that is for me. So you have six kids of your own, three uh, from your first marriage, two uh, with your wife, Patty, and the stepchild as well. Um, how do you think your parents impacted how you are as a father? Well, I'm sure they impacted me in a lot of ways. My situation's obviously different. Um, I'm in a second marriage. Uh, my parents were together for 59 years. Um, times are different. With the day and age, unfortunately, with 9-11 and you know, other things that have gone on, you seem to, you know, parents are more protective, I suppose. And maybe I was, in some ways, too protective with the older ones. And then less is, you know, it, 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 I was the oldest, so I know that you gotta be home at 10. Uh, and so you get to be looser as time goes on because you, re you realize that you've got to be able to be a little more flexible and maybe you don't have to be quite as, you know, intense about certain things. Uh, you live and learn and, and certainly um, it depends on the person you're with. It depends on, you know, with kids it's difficult, especially if you're in a relate, you know, you have kids that, you know, you, through a divorce and uh, if, if my stepchild, um, she, I met her when she was nine. Well, she walked into a situation where there was other kids already, and then she was the only one, as it turns out, of the six that I had that wasn't my blood kid. So, you know, that, you have to sort of try to think about that, how uh, hopefully I can try to treat her as much as possible as the same as all the other kids, and how is she gonna view it? How am I gonna deal with it? And then you have, uh, if your ex is telling them one thing and you're telling them another, and then they're getting conflicting messages. And even with your present wife, who, you know, I've been, I feel like I had this second opportunity that I was lucky enough to understand I shouldn't pass up on, and it's been, a, uh, I believe, a great thing for me. But we don't agree on everything. We don't agree on everything about how to raise kids or what to do, and so um, it's, I've learned that while um, my parents, uh, I believe, were good parents, really good parents, that by far and away, for me, the toughest thing I've ever had to do was to try to figure out how to be a good father, you know, and a good parent. There's nothing more satisfying but more difficult. Your son, Kevin, wrote a novel which had great reviews. Um, in some of the interviews he gave uh, around the novel, he, he made the comment something to the effect of that he felt like he struggled to live up to your expectations. How tough uh, was it for you to r read that? Well, it's, it's, it's tougher for me to see my kids feel like they have a hard time living up to my expectations. One of the reasons why I really pushed my kids away from tennis is because I didn't want them to have to live up to sort of, you gotta be better than John McEnroe. And in addition to the fact that it'll be, there's McEnroe's kid, how does he act? So I felt like, you know. And when your parents incredibly successful, regardless of the field, it probably has to be tough, yeah. I'm sure, you know, it's, it's I would like to hope that it's a good problem to have, but I, you know, I don't think I was as, as sympathetic as I could have been. Um, how so? Well, because I try to treat them just like normal kids and, you know, try to be like, um, look, it's more good than bad. You know, you've got more opportunity than the difficulties, but I sort of didn't realize that can be somewhat overwhelming. And I think it continues to be in a way, you know, so I feel bad. But I mean, what I wanted to try to have the kids to have like a fire in the belly for whatever they wanted. You want to write a book? Great. You want to act? Okay. 
um, whatever it is you want to do, but you just got to go all in with it. Um, and so that's the part where if I feel like I could have done better, I could have figured out a better way to sort of get them to understand that and be more supportive and understanding of the difficulties it is to sort of live up sort of maybe if, he, if that's what he's feeling. I mean, that makes me feel bad that I would have liked to have hoped I could have done a better job parenting, parenting so that he would understand that that's not what I need from him. But probably also every parent probably woulda, coulda, shoulda, you know, oh, no, like sure. them. Yeah. You know, every day. Right. You know, every day you're making, you know, you, you could go on and on. So, and then there's always the, how, how much are you gonna push them? Uh, how much do they need to be pushed? Um, how much should you push them? Um, so this is, these are all exact, exactly why, to me, there's again, nothing more rewarding or difficult than being a parent. Your personality. Uh, when you lost a match growing up or when you didn't get an A in school, how would you act? Well, sometimes I cried, but um, <clears throat> not, um, I think, I didn't take too kindly to it. Um, it's not easy to lose. I mean, go ask anybody. Um, however, I do think you learn more from losing than you do from winning, especially when you're younger. Did you uh, feel that way then? or? Well, it's hard to feel that way then. Um, but you try to tell yourself, and you hopefully have people around you telling you that, but it's difficult to feel that when you're 12, 14, 16, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a tough, it's a very rewarding situ, uh, prospect to try to become a professional athlete. Um, but it is fraught with some danger. And I think that's why I look at things a little bit differently than perhaps um, other academies or other people. I think I have a unique perspective that most people don't have. That doesn't mean I'm automatically gonna be a better coach, but I, do, I can bring certain things to the table, both as a parent and as a player, that I think that uh, I could share with people that don't seem to, they don't seem to be able to grasp that. But that's, you know, ultimately you try, I have numerous times here with, you know, and I'm not mentioning names, with this many parents with their young kids, they, they act like they know more about tennis than I do. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I look at them like, I've, there's been a lot of, people said a lot of crazy things, but at least give me this much. <laughs> you know? uh, um, all right, but so your antics on the court, obviously, been I mean, part of what you've gotten criticized for over the years, but also what's endeared you to tons of fans as well. I want to bring up two moments and get from you what you recall. Uh, the quarterfinal at Longwood Cricket Club in Boston. What happened after losing uh, the doubles match? I got freaked out by this, this couple or lady that was um, uh, clapping, you know, and we lost. And then basically I made the mistake. It was a st stupid thing to do. I was 19 years old, I think, or something like that. And I went over and I basically spit like in front of her, um, not on her. And that's still gross and wrong to do it. Um, to, to, uh, just cause I was so pissed at this person and, you know, kept going for like two, three minutes after the match was over. And then, you know, she said something like, you can't do that to me. And uh, the, fa the father, the, the, the husband, I think it was, I think it was the husband, got up, you know, and threw a punch and hit me. And I was just like, all right, I'm gonna, you know. And I basically had the guy 
where I was just going to be like, I lost it completely, you know, or I felt like I was in the process of losing it. But thankfully, the guy that I was playing doubles with, this guy, um, was, you know, and people broke it up mm -hmm. because I was sort of like um, bordering on being out of control, I suppose. And that's not me anyway. I'm not like a, the if people that know me, I don't get into fights and stuff like that. I was just like, that was uh, rather, you know, embarrassing and stupid. Thankfully, it didn't, you know, it, it could have been worse had I, you know, decided I actually was going to throw a punch. How did you once spill soda on the King of Sweden? Well, I didn't really spill it. I actually hit like, you know, I, well, there was stuff on the table and I didn't realize the King of Sweden was in the first row. And so I just wanted to clear the table, so to speak. Um, so that led to you've doused the king of Sweden, who apparently loved it. <laughs> but um, I probably was looking to get defaulted there a little bit. I was a little bit out of it. You know, I was a little bit fried from, you know, it was towards the end of the year. It's one of those times where you snap. You went to anger management counseling at one point in your life. How much, if at all, did it help? Um, and then another part of that is, you made the comment before, that you also, in the back of your mind, never really wanted to completely give up the anger, right? I think in some ways, you know, anger can be, can be used in a positive way. Uh, if it gets you to try harder, it's a good thing to express yourself. Um, it, there's times where it goes too far, there's no question about it. I've been to many, many different people, not all because of anger management. Sometimes, unfortunately, in divorces and things of that nature, and uh, you get to a point where it gets to a stage where something might be court appointed, um, which I was more than happy to do. Um, not happy when you're told you have to do it. It's better to do it when you maybe want to do it. But nonetheless, I do believe that overall it's helped. How um, so? Well, if nothing else, you blow off some steam with someone, but you get to hear a different, hopefully a professional perspective and, you know, sort of make sense of things. You know, I think sometimes it's good to see someone when things are going well, not just when things are going badly. So um, I would, con would and will continue. I don't happen to be at this very moment, although I do believe, especially with what happened with my parents passing away and um, life in general, that it's not a bad thing that to try to, for me to try to find someone else. I've probably seen at least 10 people. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, some for a guy moved or a girl, this, that, I mean, or I decided to try, or just time went by, you know, different areas. But it's, there's certainly, um, it's certainly something that's worth trying. And I'm, if, if I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can afford it, because God knows they charge you know, way too much for most people, then I'm lucky enough to be able to hopefully benefit. I'm not saying that every, you know, every person should, that's up to the person to decide. But for me personally, I think there's overall it's helped. I mean, it's not like I've become a completely different person because of that. I think life is, has allowed me to get a perspective where hopefully I've got a better handle on things. That doesn't mean I don't make, make mistakes every day. Why did you say with the uh, anger it got to a point later on in your career where you didn't know if you were getting angry because it was expected of you or because you were actually probably angry? Because of, probably because of the kids, uh, you know, having kids, you sort of, you're obviously as a father, you're gonna be setting a different type of example. 
um, they talk about you being a role model. When I had kids, it just seemed like, I, I don't know, maybe I didn't have the same fire, you know, desire that I did because I sort of saw things in a different way. So I became what I, what I would say was sort of like a cigarette smoker that couldn't kick the habit. You know, I, di I didn't want to be doing it anymore. I'm not saying it was necessarily wrong. It just, I didn't, I just felt like I was doing it for the wrong reason. That's all. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of cigarette smokers. They wish they quit, but they couldn't. And they're like, why am I doing this? And they'd be like, good question. And so that sort of felt like that way because I could have had, the time could have been spent better some, some other way. I watched a number of press conferences that you had over the years and you'd be asked to question something along the lines of what's your goal? Um, and you always said basically to be the best I can be. Um, to what extent do you feel you maximized your potential? That's difficult to say. I'd say probably 90%. You know, I mean, I didn't reach my potential, but it's very difficult to reach your potential. I think I did better than most people. When I took time off, six months off or so, when, which doesn't seem like a crazy amount of time now, Roger Federer, um, that uh, I was coming back to be a better player. I didn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, parents thought, oh, he's gonna quit, or some people thought, no, I was gonna come back and be a better player. That was the plan. I mean, it wasn't a plan to be a worse player. And I tried a whole set of things, whether it was, you know, weightlifting, you know, yoga, training more off court, getting back to playing a little bit more, uh, changing, trying different racket, whatever it was, anything and everything. At the time, if you look at where I was at, say, the end of 1984, 1985, I, I did feel at that particular stage that I thought to myself that maybe it sounds egotistical, but, and I guess it is. When I was at that stage, I thought no one's ever played you know, better than I played. You know, when I'm at my best, I feel like I'm the best that's played. I brought the game up to a different level. Um, but why aren't I feeling better about it? So I felt like something was missing uh, in my life. It wasn't the tennis part. So because of that other part, probably ultimately my tennis was hurt. You wrote in your book, for anyone who's been on the top, once you've lost it, everything spirals out of control and it's difficult to find your way back. Explain that. Well, you know, some of this is you rely on instinct and some of it is luck and some of it is a lot of hard work, but at the same time, you work for many years to maintain that edge, and any athlete will tell you that you don't want to lose it once you get there. Because you've spent years, you know, with every part of the sport, the mental part, the preparation, the intensity, the playing, all that to come to a point where you've got an edge. And I don't think I was ever counted out. My last Wimbledon, I got to the semis. Uh, I played Sampras in the semis of the Open when I was 31. I thought to myself, all right, I got, I got this. You know, he's 19. Now he was, turns out he's a, turned out to be a pretty good player. And Agassi in the final. Now I could have lost to him, I guess, too, because I lost him in Wimbledon. But that seemed like it was going to happen. Um, and it didn't. So it's, <laughs> I wish I knew the answers to these. The, the end of your tennis career, per se, was also basically the end of your marriage. And you wrote, I felt as though the bottom had dropped out of the world. How would you describe the feeling? Not only was I losing a part of my identity, which was tennis, I or so I thought, um, I, 
turns out I'm still obviously a lot more involved than I thought I would be at the time. Um, what I basically thought I was stopping for in a way was so that allow my ex-wife to sort of have the opportunity to go out and do her thing and then take care of the kids, which I thought, hey, that's not a bad thing. They're young and that would be a good thing. So then to have sort of neither one of those in a way, like the end of the marriage and the career, that was, you know, that was a lot to handle. That seemed a bit overwhelming. Do you remember why you were crying on the changeovers in Paris? Yeah, because of what I was going through. It just was too, I, did, I shouldn't have been out on the court. I felt like I was sort of obligated to sort of finish. I mean, I guess I didn't have to. I guess I was lucky in a way that there, I played with my brother. So I, you know, I had some support system. Patrick was with me. Um, Davis Cup meant a lot to me around that time uh, because I was around people that were supporting me and my kids were there. And so I was g least getting by by the skin of my teeth. With regards to Patrick specifically, uh, you said what saved my life in Paris was the presence of Patrick. Um, what do you mean to save your life? Having Patrick playing doubles and just being around him was very, um, was very helpful to get me through. You know, I had some good, strong support. Um, I was with Andre, I remember, the week before Davis Cup, and he was trying to help me through things. And uh, the team and Davis Cup, that meant a lot. You know, Pete was there, and he said he loved me, you know, and on the, when we won the double. So that, you know, that I'm sure that I'm, I think it's safe to say that that's the only time he's ever said that to another player on a tennis court. I love you. I love you, man. But that meant a lot to me. He probably won't even admit he said it now. Um, hopefully he will, but that was, you know, just having your sort of tennis family around at that time was, was very important. How much do you miss anonymity? I don't know because it haven't been that way since I was 18. So I suppose, you know, most of it's pretty good, I guess. But sometimes it's, it's not the best. But for the most part, I've been pretty damn lucky. I mean, as far as if you told me at 18, you know, that I'd be, you're sitting there at 59 talking to me, who the hell would care? So I guess that's a good thing. Um, and so I still have a place in the sport. And, you know, I'm going to slowly... I've worked, my, I've worked many, many years, Graham, for um, the past probably 15 to 20 years of slowly weaning myself off this. So that someday I what will do you, what do you mean? weaning myself off the attention and the adulation so that I can handle when someone, you know, they don't know who, they, Patty's always like, God, Christ, just go out and forget about it if someone comes up and speaks to you. And because the others be like, oh, my God, do I have to sign an autograph or take some dumb selfie? And then it'd be like, oh, my God, what happens if they don't even know who I am? So there's that part where the, the question's going to become when you get to that stage, what's going to happen when uh, they don't know? Are you going to be able OK with that? So I've worked many years to try to be like, look, I'm going to be OK with that. I hope I, I will be. It's the same as um, people always ask me, do you love tennis? And I'll go, I'll tell you when I know I love tennis, I think I love tennis, but I'll love tennis when I'm out there playing tennis where they don't pay me to play. So that hasn't happened yet. The paparazzi, you said they don't have blood in their veins, they have vomit. Um, I, wasn't that 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 I wasn't that nice, was I? <laughs> <laughs> How did the paparazzi act towards you? Same way they act now, you know, like heinous individuals. What were the kind of limits to which you'd let yourself 
go in terms of acting towards them? Try not to, you know, not to hit them because you know you feel like you hit guys, you're, you're, you know, you get it sued, and you want to, I guess. I mean, look, I'm sure plenty of people do. I mean, even the nice guys do. They even get tired of it. I bet you, the greatest people in the world, you know, the ones that handle it, amazing. You're like, how the hell is Tom Brady keep doing that, man? Where he just seems like he's this great-looking guy, he wins everything, and then he's got the you know beautiful wife and everything and then he the people he puts up with it doesn't seem like you see him in any fights i'm sure he's part of like gee many christmas maybe i'm wrong maybe some people handle it better than others but to me um I mean, obviously people do handle it better than others and i would not be the poster boy for handling it well but at the same time um this whole thing is completely crazy it's, it's beyond belief so a few music moments I wanted to mention and get what you recall. How about the best time you ever had with Madonna and Sean Penn? Well, you know, we th when they were living in Malibu, um, I remember one uh, dinner where, because uh, I, <laughs> it just seemed like, I thought my relationship was volatile, let's put it that way, or it, th so it had been talked about with my ex-wife. So. Then I felt more comfortable, you know, when I swim. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because theirs is even more volatile. What would happen? Well, they didn't throw punches in front of me, but, you know, you could see that uh, things, you know, Sean's a very intense person, and Madonna's got her own. I don't know them well enough. I mean, I know Sean a little bit. I haven't seen much of them recently. So you're talking about ancient history 30 years ago? Um, and so at the time, it seemed like a normal thing, you know, but in, in retrospect, I would hardly call, I mean, my approach to life is different than Madonna's. I mean, she's obviously unbelievably successful and Sean has, uh, is also incredibly successful. And, you know, I'd shy away a little bit more than that, you know, and um, certain things. Um, they took it to different levels than I did, but uh, that, that's part of why it didn't last very long. Spending time with Paul McCartney? Well, I mean, <sighs> I guess that you get certain perks uh, with certain individuals that you wouldn't obviously otherwise get. And there's this, like, the old sort of great rockers from England, you know, there's a history of tennis more in a way than in, in the States. So they have this whole thing, you know, they had gone to Wimbledon and go to Wimbledon or watch it, and they're sort of fans of tennis more than a lot of the, the guys that are from this side. And then also, when you actually get to meet him and know him a little bit, you, you're like, how, this guy is, you know, one of the Beatles. You're talking about Paul McCartney, and, and this guy's one of the greatest, you know, human beings. You forget, obviously, how talented he is, but the, you get to see how a person, I mean, I've seen how a lot of people operate and try to learn from certain people, and I'm like, you can't get higher up in terms of, I mean, we all know how talented he is, but the way he operates as a human being. How is touring yourself? We had a great tour, you know, it was the, uh, I, you know, I called myself the most traveled unsigned band in history. <laughs> but you probably would have been signed though. I don't know about that. Um, I always wanted to be like Santana, you know, that was like my, uh, he, he was the guitar player, but I needed a singer. So, cause I couldn't sing. I mean, I would like to sing a little backup, but I'm not a good singer. So and you tried doing it both. Well, I tried doing it. It's very it's very difficult to sing and play at the same time, or at least for me. So when I was started going out with Patty, and Patty had sort of been disillusioned by the music business to some degree, even though she got nominated for an Academy Award right when we met or started going out, and had sold a couple you know millions of records. It's not like she had had success, but disillusioned. 
Patty Smythe. Patty Smythe, my wife. Yeah. Successful singer. I thought, yeah. this is perfect. We'll play in a band together. Can't think of anything better. Let's, I'm going to, you know, be the, and she goes, I want to play mixed doubles with you at Wimbledon. <laughs> and I go, you don't play tennis. And she goes, exactly. <laughs> and um, she said after I played a show, she goes, if anyone's going to play music now or tour, it's me, not you. And she wasn't laughing. Uh, how did you react? You're right. You know, sometimes I make some pretty good decisions. Um, I, I don't, I'd like to think I'm not stupid, even though I love music, but the more I play guitar, the more I appreciated my tennis. And there's, that's absolutely true. My wife would put it pretty bluntly, I wrestled the guitar into submission. <laughs> That's not a good thing if you're a guitar player. You stopped touring right before you finished your first album. What happened to the album? Hopefully it's burned. Um, it's been thrown away. You have it somewhere, though. No. Right? I have some demos and stuff, and I was trying to do something. But you know what I did was, and I again, this is because I was lucky enough to be able to do this. I had the luxury of putting in the contract that this is not going to be released until I think it should be released. And I have enough respect, I'd like to thank for the people in the, you know, other industries that I have an understanding of what it's like to be good at something. And, you know, I don't want to take a job from someone because I'm John McEnroe and not because I'm good enough or at least close to being good enough. And so um, I wouldn't release it because it didn't, it wasn't good enough. That's why. I mean, I could have released it, you know, in the 80s, they asked me to release a record when I barely played. Um, and they could have put a compilation and a bunch of singers and this, that, and the other thing. And then this one, I kept, I remember I had Eddie Kramer at one stage, and Eddie was the engineer of Hendrix. You know, you've heard of him, Jimi Hendrix. And so I'm like thinking, okay, I go, Eddie, I can't sing, you know, I think we, it's become evident I can't sing, but there's stuff that's coming into being, I think it's Pro Tools and things. You can make me sound good. And then I would have considered, even if it was like, in a way, if it sounded good, that's what matters. Because there's some people that don't really sing that great that are out there. But I couldn't even do that. That's how, I guess, how hopeless it was. I was talking to your agent, Gary Swain, and asked him about what he thinks the best investment is you ever made, thinking he's going to go in a completely different direction. He said, Patty. Smart agent, you know, say what you want to hear. But no, it's true. I think that it gave me a sort of second lease on life. And she's allowed me, you know, and, and doesn't get thanked for it enough. You know, you try to sort of put your career on hold in a way. Um, and then try to step in when you're on the road or, you know, try to be a, the, the only job tougher than being a parent is being a step parent. Um, so it's very difficult to sort of feel you're getting sort of your dues and, and, and being able to navigate this, especially if you're having difficulties with the other people involved. And, but allowing me to sort of do my thing in a way and continue to sort of explore like avenues, whether it was trying to be in a talk show or whether it's a game show, whether, whatever it was, you know, whatever I thought I could do, or it would just end up being tennis or being able to come to this academy as, as often as they do or play this seniors tour to be able to continue to commentate. So all that, in, in addition to, I feel like, you know, sort of making me more whole and a better person. So I, I completely agree. How did you first realize this relationship was going to be different? Yeah, you know, I actually thought, like, I was lucky pretty soon. Early on, I saw it. Um, I sensed something. I was, you know, at the stage, I was probably 
35 years old when we started to go out. And um, I thought to myself, at that time, I go, I don't want any, and I've, I got three kids, we're going through, you know, we just got divorced. I don't want any more kids. I don't want to have another marriage. That was, you know, it was so, it, it was tough to handle. I just want to go out with some young girls that don't want to do anything but have a good time. And then Patty came along. It didn't sound bad, right? <laughs> and so that was my goal. You know, I was like, look, I've got, you know, I've got to take a step back here. And then exactly when I didn't want to sort of get into something, I met, met Patty again. I'd met her once previously, like nine months earlier, but then we had a date, went out a couple of times, and I thought to myself, you know something, don't be a moron now so that you can tell yourself you had a good time again. You already made that mistake before in the past. You've got to like, sort of do an about face. And I'm proud of myself that I did. And I was lucky that I, that I did that. What do you think she would say about why it works? I'd like to think that we, you know, we, we were, work as a team and we made each other, the same way you, you, in a rival, you make each other better that the sum of the two of us is better than individual parts. I think that's true in like our social life, our life in general. Hopefully, you know, you may get some disagreement with some of my kids, but I might, as parents, um, how you're juggling, but you're ultimately trying to make yourself uh, uh, better individuals and, and, and giving what the other person needs when they're, they're, there's a vacuum there. Or if whoever's disillusioned, they pick you up. So I think that I'd like to think that we do that uh, as well as uh, most couples. How true is it that before you ever even started buying art, uh, you went to galleries around the world when you were on the road for tennis? Well, I actually bought art like pretty soon, as soon as I could afford something. You know, I had bought a place on the Upper East Side. I used to live on, um, first place that I ever was in on my own was on East End Avenue, uh, across the street from the mayor's house. Uh, where they, the mayor sometimes lives if he doesn't want to be at his other home or whatever. Um, and to me, as a kid, you know, suddenly I was thrust into this, you know, professional tennis world, but I was, I was like, whoa, this, you can make a great living doing this. This is amazing. Tennis? So I started, I remember when I got paid $11,000 to play six exhibition matches in Holland and Ely Nastasi was driving me all around. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna take this a lot more seriously because you can really make some money. And so I was, I, I started taking it more seriously. And, and I, because of that, I, uh, I was able to afford to buy, what do you do as, you know, 20 years old? You know, you wanna buy an apartment in the city. That was my dream to be able to live in Manhattan. You wanna buy a car? In those days, people still cared about stereo equipment and quality of music. And then you said, well, you put it, you know, having Vitas take me around, you know, starting to take me around here and meeting artists is like, wow, it'd be great to have a piece of art that sort of you walk down and, you know, get you to train harder or, you know, pump up. So that's, you know, as soon as I could sort of feel like I got past having an apartment and a car and the stereo equipment, that was the next step for me. I didn't care if I had a stock, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't interested in looking at that. I was interested in stuff that I could sort of feel. How do you go about finding a deal in art? Well, there's, a, you know, as you can imagine, there's tons of people that are looking to take advantage, no, uh, to a um, lot of dealers and there's a lot of galleries and, 
you know, the, the truth is, like anything, you have to be as educated as possible. I mean, again, you're going to get burned, and people take advantage of you, and you learn the hard way, whether it's through buying from people or um, auctions. I remember one guy, I, I loved the piece of art, and I, I think it was like 200000 I go, $200,000? That's a lot of money. And they were asking $250,000. we will give it to you for two hundred. You go, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's 20% less than they said. And then I sort of eventually did some research, and the most of the artists that had ever been had fetched or gotten at auction was like 12,000. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> now, that doesn't necessarily, you know, maybe his best art hadn't been become available, but something <laughs> told me this might have not have right. been the right thing. So there's, in the way, it, it's in a very un, unregulated business, so you have to be extremely careful. I, there's a lot of people I know and are friends with in the art world, and I love, you know, there's a lot of p things about art that are amazing, but there's also you know, the, uh, the other part that uh, you know, it's become so much of a business, at least for me, you know, and others have you know, become billionaires, and some of the artists have become unbelievably wealthy, and maybe they deserve to. But for me, it became less enjoyable. You know, it's become less enjoyable. What do you think you've learned from bad decisions you've made with art? Well, I suppose that, uh, it makes you feel like shit. No, um, does it? No, of course. If you, any bad decision, it's like losing. You know, when you're younger in, uh, on a tennis court, you feel like, okay, what did I do to screw this up? And you'll try to think of things the next time. If you play that, you know, the next time I play Connors, I'm not going to fall for this. So you're like, you know, it's not necessarily, they're not all out to get you by any means, but you know, they're all trying to make a living and they know, most of them know a lot more. I know a lot of, about art for a, like a tennis player. And I think I know a lot more about art. You know art. a lot about art for- Well, I know uh, a lot more about art than most, most people, yeah. but you know, then you're talking about a select, you know, whoever that is, 1% that live and breathe it. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why I've had to back off because if I'm going to spend as much time as I am playing tennis and trying to find the next, hopefully US Open champion to come out of Queens or Manhattan, which would be my biggest goal at this stage, or you know, help kids and play. You know, I've been playing on this seniors, champions, whatever old fogies story, whatever you want to call it, for 25 years, and I'm commentating. You know, that how much time left is there? I mean, you're automatically automatically have two strikes against you. Uh, you had a Renoir, sold it, had a Picasso, sold it. Uh, you just sold one recently for $10.4 million. How do you go about deciding whether to sell? Well, I wish I hadn't sold a lot of them. You know, I would have been one many sitting here with you right now. I would have said, the hell with all these people that want to interview me. Um, what do you mean you wish you wouldn't have sold a well, lot? Well, some of the art that I sold, I sold and made money on, but it's worth 20 times what it is, you know. But if I'm going to sit there and dwell on that, that's, I, I can't imagine that being productive or what I could have done or should have done. I should have done this. So to me, that's extremely dangerous territory. And that doesn't mean I don't have sleepless nights about that match or I don't have um, uh, feelings of I, I screwed up about other matches or art for that matter. Sometimes life gets in the way. Uh, I was trying to get a piece of art. Um, uh, years ago, and right when it was happening, and I was about to close the deal, Patty calls me and says, Anna's fallen, and she thinks she's broken her arm. And I hesitated, because I was like, I'm about to close this deal. You know, meet me at the hospital right now. And she, understandably, was furious at me. Because I was thinking, you know, I was like trying to, 
You know, I was like, look, I'm, I'm up there. I'll be up there, you know. And then I sort of, I was, I was sort of upset about the way I was being treated because the people added some other piece of art. I was like, the hell with it. Screw it. And I screwed both things up. You know, I didn't get the piece of art that I wanted, and Patty was pissed at me. So uh, that, you know, that was like a lose-lose. Um, we'll end uh, on this. How about the pieces of art most on your wish list? You know, there's so many of those. I mean, now, I probably, sometimes when I look at Van Gogh, it'd be great, it would be great to have like a Van Gogh and like, there's so many different ones, early Picasso. Um, you know, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of really good pieces of art. You know, the Picasso that I own was, I mean, it was a Picasso. I also lost, you know, 6261 to some person you never heard of. That doesn't mean it was like the world's greatest painting. But almost anything Picasso did was great. It wasn't like a great Picasso, but I was proud that I was like, I had a Picasso for all. But I ended up trading it for another piece there were a bit that I became more interested in. And the Renoir wasn't a great Renoir, but it was still a Renoir, and it was amazing to own it the 10 years I owned it. I don't like to buy and sell anything quickly. I'd like to give it at least, like, you know, minimum three to five years and longer in a lot of cases. Enjoy it, if possible. Only if something came along, you know, where I actually thought it'd be like a step up, would, would I do that. But, I, I, you know, Guernica would be... Uh, now that's a horrific, you know, image in a way. It's about war and it's probably the greatest, if one of the greatest, if not the greatest painting Picasso ever did. But you could look at that thing, I'm sure, for weeks in a way and just think that when, when he painted that and just everything that was going on in World War II and him eventually having to leave Spain, I believe, I don't know what year it was, and, and, and go to France and get away from it. And, that's not, even then it wasn't getting away from it, but that's got it, you know, I mean, there's certain masterpieces that you could pick. I could name 50 artists where I could probably pick one of them and say like, hey, that'd be good to get one of those. This has been a long time coming and I really appreciate you doing this. It's a real treat. You got it. For a tour around McEnroe's Art Gallery in Manhattan, head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also, we're heavy into booking guests for the upcoming season of the show. We always love hearing from you with suggestions. It helps us a ton with our booking process. So if you have ideas, leave it in a review on this podcast. We'll check it out. Thanks again for listening and the support.